welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the hepatobiliary module from the General Surgical Curriculum, and our operation or topic we'll be covering today is cystic tumours of the pancreas. Cystic tumours of the pancreas are often found incidentally on imaging. They're mostly asymptomatic, and although they're very rare, they do have a risk of a malignant potential. So this is why we're interested in these lesions. They're much more common in women than men with a two-to-one ratio, and the likelihood of these lesions increases with age. The classification of pancreatic cystic lesions can be considered as non-neoplastic or neoplastic lesions. The non-neoplastic lesions are things such as pseudocysts, which we won't be talking about today. This will be explored more under the pancreatitis episode. You can also get simple or congenital cysts, which are just simple cysts um, in the pancreas, although these are very rare. In the neoplastic category, um, I consider these under the headings of mucinous neoplastic cystic lesions, non-mucinous neoplastic cystic lesions and other neoplastic lesions. Under the mucinous category are introductal papillary mucinous neoplasms. These are called IPMNs. The other mucinous neoplastic cystic lesion is mucinous cystic neoplasms. Under the heading of non-mucinous cystic neoplastic lesions are serous cystic neoplasms, and solid pseudopapillary neoplasms. And then lastly, under the other neoplastic cystic lesions of the pancreas heading are ductal adenocarcinomas or neuroendocrine tumors with cystic degeneration. So I'm going to go into each of these different cystic lesions in more detail. But as we're going through, pay attention to a couple of the different features which do allow us to differentiate these tumors from each other. And figuring out which of these lesions you're looking at is important because that's going to determine what your management is of the lesion. So some of the things we talk about are the age of the patient when it's diagnosed, male versus female preponderance, whether they have a history of pancreatitis, the location in the pancreas, its appearance on imaging, and the characteristics of fluid that can be aspirated with endoscopic ultrasound guidance. One other thing I wanted to mention about these lesions is that the workup and management of these lesions can be quite complex and they may require long-term follow-up. So it's important that these lesions are referred to and managed by a specialty hepatobiliary center and discussed at a specialty MDT. Before I go into each of these different neoplasms, I just wanted to briefly talk through the sort of possibilities for workup for these lesions. So most of these patients will have these lesions identified on some sort of imaging modality. On a CT pancreas, there's not great definition of the pancreas um, uh, and there's not great sensitivity with this procedure for looking at these lesions, but you might get an impression that there is a lesion there. The MRI or MRCP is the modality of choice for these lesions. 
It's much more sensitive and gives you much better anatomical information about the lesion. There's no role for ERCP in workup of asymptomatic pancreatic cystic lesions. A CA199 blood test can also be used when you have a cystic lesion if you're concerned that there may already be a malignant transformation of the lesion. But there's no other useful serum biomarkers to differentiate between pancreatic cysts. You may send off a lipase if you're worried that a patient has a cystic lesion and pancreatitis concomitantly. And you could also consider doing liver function tests if you have a head of pancreas mass and evidence of uh, biliary obstruction. In terms of further investigation, patients can have a endoscopic ultrasound and fine needle aspirate of the cystic lesion. This should only really be done if you think it's going to change management. So if your imaging and history give you enough information that you know what the lesion is and you can manage it based on that information, you may not need to do an endoscopic ultrasound and FNA. But these can be done in certain situations. An endoscopic ultrasound can be quite useful as an adjunct to the imaging if the MRI or CT is unclear. It gives you a close-up picture of the lesion and may demonstrate areas of uh, mural enhancement or nodules, for example. FNA should only be used if it's going to change your management and usually involves aspirating some of the fluid from the lesion, which is then sent to be analysed in the lab. The sort of things we send cis fluid for are a CEA level, cytology, and you can also send it for amylase um, and other types of molecular testing such as KRAS. And the FNA should target solid components or thickened areas of the cyst if possible. In general, a pseudocyst will have an elevated amylase or lipase level, which makes sense as these are a complication of pancreatitis. Um, and in terms of the CEA, this is the way that we differentiate a mucinist from a non-mucinous cyst. Remember when I was talking about um, the different classifications of cystic lesions being neoplastic and non-neoplastic, the neoplastic ones being split up into mucinous and non-mucinous. That's where the CEA comes in handy. And the numbers we use for that are that a CEA level of more than 192 is consistent with a mucinous cystic lesion. And if it's less than 192, then it's a non-mucinous cystic lesion. So now we know what sort of uh, potential investigation modalities we have to look at these lesions. Let's talk about each of them in turn and see where all of these fit in. So let's start with the neoplastic cystic neoplasms. And we're going to first start with the two mucinous cystic lesions. So the two types of mucinous cystic lesions that are neoplastic are IPMNs and MCNs or mucinous cystic neoplasms. So let's first start with IPMNs. IPMNs are increasingly recognized and picked up usually because of imaging for other reasons. These are a mucin-producing epithelial neoplasm of the pancreas, and they account for about 20 to 50% of all cystic neoplasms of the pancreas. They basically arise from the cells of the ductal system, and they exhibit variable cellular atypia, and they can cause dilation of the pancreatic ducts due to the mucin that's produced blocking the ducts. IPMNs typically arise in elderly patients with a male preponderance over females. 
They may have a history of pancreatitis and the most common location for IPMNs is in the head of the pancreas. The cause of IPMNs is not known, but there is an association with smoking and chronic pancreatitis, as well as colon, breast and prostate cancer. IPMNs can be classified according to their radiological appearance and whether they're involving the main pancreatic duct, a branch duct, or whether there are mixed types with both main and branch duct IPMNs. The imaging features of an IPMN is usually diffuse or segmental dilatation of the pancreatic duct without a strictured or narrowed segment. You can usually see a connection with the main or branch pancreatic duct um, to the cyst, which makes sense because these are arising from the ducts themselves. And typically they'll have a cystic appearance, but they may have solid components. One other feature that I should mention with IPMNs that often gets used as a spot photo is the picture of the fish mouth appearance of the major uh, ampulla when you're looking endoscopically, which looks like a open fish mouth filled with mucin. And this is pathognomonic of an IPMN. It's worth having a look at a picture on Google of that. IPMNs have a malignant potential. The risk of invasive malignancy for a main duct IPMN is quite high. It ranges between 30 and up to 70% if there's evidence of high risk features already at diagnosis. And for side branch IPMNs, it's somewhere around the 10 to 15% mark. So it's really important when you see these lesions that further testing is undertaken with imaging and potentially EUS of the lesion in order to guide further management. So just to talk a little bit about management of these lesions, there is a set of guidelines called the Fukuoka Guidelines, which was released in 2012. And there's another set of guidelines called the Sendai Guidelines, which basically look at similar things. At a recent shoot, I was told to use one of them and know it well. And so I'm choosing to use the Fukuoka Guidelines. Basically, the Fukuoka guidelines look at whether there is any high-risk stigmata of malignancy present in a IPMN. And if any of these high-risk stigmata are present, then that patient has a high risk of already harboring a pancreatic malignancy in that lesion, and they should therefore be resected. These high-risk stigmata are obstructive jaundice in a patient with a cystic lesion in the head of the pancreas an enhancing mural nodule more than five millimeters in size or main pancreatic duct dilatation more than one centimeter. And so as I've mentioned, if any of those are present, then the patient should be considered for resection if they're well enough for resection. If they don't have any of these high risk stigmata, then they then get assessed across a separate uh, number of features which are called worrisome features. These include the presence clinically of pancreatitis and the following imaging signs. So if the size of the IPMN cyst is more than three centimetres, if there's an enhancing mural nodule that is less than five millimetres in size, if there's thickened or enhancing cyst walls, if the main duct measures between five and nine millimetres, if there's an abrupt change in the caliber of the pancreatic duct with distal pancreatic atrophy, an evidence of lymphadenopathy, an increased serum CA199, 
or assist growth rate more than five millimeters over two years. If any of these worrisome features are present, then they suggest doing an endoscopic ultrasound and to do an aspiration of the fluid of the cyst. And you want to have a look at whether there is a definitive mural nodule on that endoscopic ultrasound that's more than five millimeters in size, whether or not the main duct features are suspicious um, and whether the cytology is suspicious or positive for malignant cells. So if none of those things occur, then you basically manage the patient on the size of the cyst. And if it's inconclusive, then you have close follow-up with alternating MRI and endoscopic ultrasound every three to six months, or potentially consider surgery in a young fit patient. It's worth having a look at the Fukuoka guidelines um, and having a a look at the flow chart that goes with this. I think it's quite helpful for decision-making, but really knowing those high-risk stigmata and the worrisome features is important. So just briefly to mention as well, if you're doing a FNA of a IPMN, what you might expect to find is a high CEA level because of the mucin component. And on cytology, you should see mucin containing columnar cells, which will have varying atypia depending on whether or not that IPMN is on its way to becoming a malignancy. In terms of if none of the worrisome features are present, Again, it depends on the size of the larger cyst. So your follow-up will depend on the size of that cyst. So if it's less than one centimeter, then you're going to do a CT or MRI every six months um, and then every two years if there's no change. If it's one to two centimeters, you're going to do a CT or MRI every six months and then one yearly, two yearly and lengthen the interval out to two years if there's no change. If it's two to three centimeters in size, You want to do an endoscopic ultrasound in three to six months, and then you can lengthen that interval um, up to a year, alternating MRI and EUS, and consider surgery in a young patient. And same, if it's more than three centimetres, you want to do MRI, EUS, alternating every three to six months, and consider surgery in a young, fit patient. It's important to remember, though, that these guidelines are really for side branch IPMNs only. If you have a main branch or main duct IPMN, and the Uh, main duct is more than a centimetre in size, then these patients need resection. So the second type of mucinous neoplastic cystic lesion is a mucinous cystic neoplasm or MCN. These tumours are also known as mucinous cyst adenomas. You might come across that term as well. These are neoplasms which do also have a malignant potential. The cancer risk in these lesions is anywhere between 6 and 36%, which is pretty high when talking about pancreatic cancer. They are much, much more common in women with a 10 to 1 ratio compared to men and found in the middle age group with the average age of 45 years old. They're also much more commonly found in the body and the tail of the pancreas and make up about a third of cystic tumours of the pancreas. On imaging, you might see a well-circumscribed rounded cystic lesion. They can have peripheral calcifications, which can be known as an eggshell sign, and they can also have some septations within them. Some signs that would make you more concerned about it already harboring a malignancy would be if there was evidence of a thick wall or mural nodules. 
The overall risk of malignancy in mucinous cystic neoplasms is about 15%. And there's increasing risk of malignancy related to the size of the lesion, how long a patient has had it, and whether there are any solid components. The interesting thing about mucinous cystic neoplasms is their histopathology. So they have a lining of columnar epithelium, which secretes mucin, but they also have an ovarian-like stroma, which can stain positive for estrogen and progesterone receptors. And these are one of those buzzwords that they uh, like to use in the exam. Um, So on aspiration and cytology, you might see this ovarian-like stroma staining positive for estrogen and progesterone receptors. If you did an FNA and wanted to talk about what you might find in the fluid, this is a mucinous lesion. So again, you're going to have a high CEA level over that magic number cutoff of 192 and low levels of amylase. In terms of management of these lesions, I've seen a couple of different things in the literature. The first is if the lesion is over four centimeters and definitely if there's any evidence of suspicious features like a thick enhancing wall or mural nodularity these patients should be offered a resection i've also heard that in patients with less than four centimeter tumor and no high-risk features they could be offered surveillance at six monthly to one yearly intervals but recently um, in a treat with one of the hpb fellows uh, they were talking about just resecting these lesions due to their risk of malignancy especially as they're more common in that middle age group where patients are probably going to be more likely to be fit for surgery. Let's move on now to the non-mucinous neoplastic cystic lesions. These lesions were serous cystic neoplasms and solid pseudopapillary neoplasms. So serous cystic neoplasms are pretty much always benign. So you can see that it's important to differentiate what you're dealing with because if this is benign and asymptomatic, you're potentially avoiding a major pancreatic resection for this patient. Serous cystic neoplasms account for about a quarter of cystic tumors of the pancreas and most of them are asymptomatic and found incidentally. They grow very slowly and they can be associated with von Hippel-Lindau disease. These tumours are more common in men than women with about a 4 to 1 ratio and are often found in an elderly age group, typically 70 to 80 year olds. They can be found anywhere in the pancreas. And essentially these are benign neoplasms which have cuboidal cells lining their cysts that originate from the pancreatic enteroacena cells. On radiology, these tumors have a typical appearance. It's described as a bunch of grapes or a honeycomb appearance. So they're multiloculated and they can have a central calcification in a starburst pattern. It's worth looking up some pictures of these so that you can identify them radiologically. If these are diagnosed radiologically, then no further investigation or follow-up is required as these are benign lesions. And that's obviously if the patient is asymptomatic. If it's unclear what the tumour is, these patients may undergo an EUS and FNA of the lesion, where because this is a non-mucinous lesion, they will have a low CEA, a low lipase level, and the cells lining the cyst may stain positive for periodic acid shift. In terms of management of these lesions, 
if they're small, asymptomatic and diagnostic of a serous cystic neoplasm, then they don't need to be followed up and they don't need any surgery. In the case of a very large tumour, especially if it's over four centimetres, it may cause symptoms, in which case you could resect the lesion for symptoms. If it's not clear what it is, um, you may want to monitor it and look to see if there's any change in the size of the lesion, with obviously a rapid growth of the lesion making you more concerned and you may consider resection in that situation. So the last of the non-mucinous neoplastic cystic lesion of the pancreas to talk about is a solid pseudopapillary tumor. And this is basically a solid tumor that gets cystic degeneration, which is why it appears cystic on the imaging. These tumors are much more common in women, again, with a 10 to 1 ratio. They're a very, very rare tumor, and they make up less than 1% of pancreatic tumors. And they typically occur in the younger age group, so 30 to 40 years old. They're most commonly found in the body and tail of the pancreas. And a key thing to know about these is that they're associated with a beta-catenin mutation. Solid pseudopapillary tumors also have a malignancy risk. This is about a 15% risk. And they also have a local infiltrating capacity, so they require aggressive resection. In terms of imaging, these tumors are often found very large at the time of diagnosis with a median size of 8 centimeters. They will typically appear as a very large lesion with a capsule and the internal components will be heterogeneous with varying solid and cystic components due to hemorrhage and then degeneration. They may enhance peripherally because the cystic spaces are more often internally and there may be calcifications and enhancing solid areas within the the tumour itself. It's easy to anticipate that a large tumour that's potentially malignant and locally aggressive occurring mostly in young women would have the management plan of resection if the patient is fit for surgery. So I'm not going to go into this in detail, but as I mentioned at the start, there are other neoplastic lesions that can occur in the pancreas that may look cystic. And this is cystic degeneration of either a ductal adenocarcinoma or neuroendocrine tumors. And so whenever you see a cystic lesion of the pancreas, you also have to be concerned of those pathologies. And that's it for today's episode on cystic tumors of the pancreas. Remember to rate the podcast, leave me a review and subscribe to First Incision. It helps other people find the program. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying!